This is The Based Catholic, because Catholicism should be the base of all hot takes. All the cool kids now are unwoke. Some of them are going back to Christianity, because it's the only way to be rebellious. Because, you know, everybody's blue-haired, non-binary, and that's like... (laughs) It's the cover of Newsweek, so you have to be like a Catholic doing sing the rosary to be a problem now. Yeah. This current world we've created spiritually for people. It's about money and profit and everything has no history or tradition. Everything's so disorienting and people are going back to things that root them. And now your host, Jessica Kramer. Welcome back to the Base Catholic. It is now 2024. I cannot believe it. In my last episode of 2023, though, I interviewed Chris Chapman, and in our talk, he referenced that the pull that he felt for his wife, Emily, resembled that of the character Andrew from Pope St. John Paul II's The Jeweler Shop, which is one of my top three favorite plays. So I thought to do an episode on it. Now, you either have Catholics who love it or those who have never heard of it, which is a shame because it's a good defense of marriage. And the more I look at the culture the more I think John Paul II's teachings on love, sex, and marriage remain the antidote to the damage Hugh Hefner's sexual revolution has left on generations. I'm sure you've heard the expression, politics is downstream from culture. Well, I would argue politics and culture are downstream from theology and philosophy. While the truth does not change, our reference point to it does. Most people don't even notice that the underpinnings to their worldview have changed, because they just want to be modern and reasonable. I actually wrote about the jeweler shop for Crisis Magazine, comparing it to the Western love story Hostels with Christian Bale. In it, I say, consider the outward gaze in contrast with the inward, and then assess the implications of that direction in the context of human relationships. In the 20th century, two opposing philosophers took two opposing views on love. John Paul Sartre, a man of Marxism, proposed that one must turn and look inward, that your life is about you, but being consumed with oneself only makes one despair. The loneliness and void drives one to want to fill up emptiness with another. But because this is a grasping desire for love in so much as it's the feeling, it does not give but only takes. This leads to the use of another human person. We see this in a myriad of ways in modern society. No-fault divorce, pre- and extramarital sex, contraceptive sex, abortion, an entitlement to marriage, an entitlement to children, and to an extent, the soulmate myth as originated by Plato. Pope St. John Paul the Great proposed an alternative that one must turn and look outward and be filled with wonder, that your life is about giving yourself away as a gift in service to the one who you find wonderful. Anyways, it's a very short read, about 90 pages, and there's a movie which I love, even though it's a very dated one from the 80s for the sole fact that Jonathan Crombie is in it. For those of you who do not know, he played the beloved Gilbert Blythe in my favorite series, Anne of Green Gables. This was honestly two worlds colliding for me. So, because when I read this a few years ago with friends and we all had questions, I decided to bring on a professor that teaches this play. Here is our debrief on Act 1. Act 2 will be later on in the show, and I'm sorry, but you're going to have to wait for Act 3 next week. I 
I am here with Professor James Wilson of the University of St. Thomas. He runs the only Master's of Fine Arts program in creative writing firmly rooted in the Catholic intellectual and literary tradition. Professor Wilson teaches St. Pope John Paul II's play, The Jeweler Shop, that he wrote back in 1980 as the Archbishop of Krakow. For those of my audience that miss the fact that John Paul II was a Renaissance man, can you tell us a little bit about his artistic background as a poet and playwright in the theater circles in Poland and how he contributed to the resistance of the Nazi occupation? Because I know that the movie version of this story is set on the cusp of World War II in 1939 Poland. It's amazing to to contemplate what he did <laughs> with his life. I know. Because uh, he was such, so many different such a talented person. <laughs> yes. I mean, he's, you know, I first came to John Paul II's writing in his role as a philosopher, and he's one of the great Catholic philosophers of the 20th century, and among the most important because he created some kind of dialogical engagement between 20th century phenomenology, or what some people would call existentialism, and Thomas Aquinas, and joined those two together in a sort of fruitful synthesis. So that would have been enough for one person's life for most people. <laughs> but during the Second World War, he was an actor, even as he was secretly attending seminary <laughs> and working you know, in a uh, stone quarry under uh, forced labor under the Nazi uh, occupation. In his role as an actor, he was also an aspiring playwright and poet. One of the poems he eventually wrote was one called The Quarry, which is about his experience of forced labor. In that poem, there are lines about the nature of work. Those lines from his poem eventually appear in slightly modified form in an encyclical letter. There was a group of them during the resistance, though, that did these underground plays, right? That's right. They had to write plays that could be performed in secret in somebody's living room. So there couldn't be a whole lot of stage setting. There couldn't, in fact, even be a lot of physical movement. And a whole aesthetic in Polish theater grew up around the constrained conditions of the occupation. John Paul II, or Kawaitiwa, was one of several playwrights who wrote this very austere, very minimal kind of playwriting where the actors really are just standing on stage speaking mm. or standing still speaking. And that comes through in the jeweler shop. The play has been and can be staged very successfully, but it's really a series of inner monologues mm. with each character speaking directly to the audience. That actually makes perfect sense for the nature of this play, because this play is about the question of whether we genuinely can speak to one another, whether we genuinely can come to participate in the existence of another person through the mystery of marital love. Since the possibility of that kind of connection, of communion, is so much in question, most of the play consists of individual actors speaking about the other characters, but speaking to the audience. Interesting. Now, before we get into the three acts, can you give my audience a summary of the play? What's it about? And why it still resonates, especially with young Catholics? It's kind of niche, but it's very popular. For many years before I started that program, I had taught this to undergraduates, and it would consistently be the book in a given semester that the students loved most. And I, <laughs> I think one of the reasons is that people know that marriage exists, they witness it. But as you know, in the last 10 years, and then some, our government has revolutionized marriage by debasing the nature of the institution and turning it into whatever you want it to be. And so most people who are under the age of 40 have grown up in a culture where everybody's talking about marriage, but nobody's actually talking about what marriage is. And this play is truly one of the most profound explorations 
of what marriage fundamentally is. And what is it? Well, it's a sacramental reality that weaves two existences together and does so through the unifying power of God. Everyone knows the language of wedding vows. Mm -hmm. Very few people understand what those words mean. Everyone knows what they want marriage to be. Very few people know that if you get what you really want with a marriage, you're going to get also more than you bargain for. Very likely in this play explores that, especially in the second act. Yeah. Well, I, I actually wrote a piece about the movie Hostels, which is a Western. I actually made the claim that it's a love story. And I compared it to the jeweler shop because there were a couple scenes that kind of reminded me of each other. And I compared and contrasted John Paul II's philosophy to John Paul Sartre's. And so I wanted to ask you, what's the philosophical influence behind this play about love? Because some people have called it the fictional artistic expression of love and responsibility. Well, that's a pretty good summary of it. Polish writing, Eastern European writing in general, tends to be much more, you might say, philosophical. It often puts artistic form at the service of larger ideas in a way that in the American and the English tradition more generally, we, we tend to resist. I mean, that's why so many people, including myself, love Dostoevsky because you have these great spiritual dramas on, you know, on the stages of, of St. Petersburg, of, of the nature of the soul, etc. And John Paul II is definitely in that that tradition. Eastern European literature is always on the cusp of breaking into a lecture. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you, you you rarely do you see that in, uh, in the English tradition. Can you talk about the difference between object versus subject and how loving someone for their own sake to will their good actually cures us of our solitude? Because I know that that's something that John Paul II talks about and writes about. And so I was wondering, is that infused in this story? Yes. So it might be good just to turn to the first act of the play. The play is in three acts and each act is about a couple. We have first Andrew and Teresa who describe to us how they have become engaged. In act two, we have Anna and Stefan who are already married, who already have children. But we learn from Anna who speaks most of the act that Anna feels totally estranged from Stefan. And then in the third act, we have Christopher and Monica who are the children of the first two marriages. And they themselves are about to become engaged. And in fact, at the end of the play are married. So we have three couples, three marriages. And in the first act, first thing that we learn is that Andrew has, as you might say, at least not been in love before, but tried to be in love before. And in fact, Andrew says, you know, I used to seek love at first sight, but then I settled for Teresa. That's not his exact language, but that's what it kind of sounds like. You know? Well, like, and I want to get into this because the movie yeah. version, I think, portrays the relationship a little bit different than the text. Yes. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Teresa is the woman to whom Andrew turns, you might say, when he's tired of the kind of solipsism or isolation that's begot by merely pursuing a superficial form of beauty, a superficial form of attraction, and maybe even a superficial form of love that borders on lust. What he says that he had done in the past is that all the attempt that he has made in pursuing a mere superficial form of beauty has led him to solitary islands, a sense of being isolated from the one that he would otherwise love. But Teresa, he feels this kind of inner pull as if he has to love her, as if he's obliged to it despite his own sort of superficial inclinations. And it's because as he gets to know her, experiences her character, she raises the possibility of what he calls an alter ego. In our day, if you ask somebody, what's an alter ego? Somebody's going to say, well, Peter Parker is Spider-Man's <laughs> alter ego. But that's not, that's not what we mean. An alter ego means another I. You ask the question about the subject 
object distinction. Most of us have the same understanding of the use of the word subject and object that John Paul II uses in his philosophy, but it's not the only one that's available. So what I mean by that is this. In classical philosophy and scholastic philosophy, Thomas Aquinas, etc., a subject is simply a cause of action, and an object is the recipient of that action. You know, if I give my wife a hug or a kiss, she's the object of my action. You know, I remember hearing on the radio 20 years ago, someone saying, well, I'm not an object, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not, so I'm not going to be an object of anyone's affection as if, as if to, to be the object of affection were to reduce a person to a chair. Yeah. Like we objectify that, them. We objectify. Exactly. And that language comes out of 18th century German idealism and it develops and it gets developed in the phenomenology of John Paul II too. And what that language proposes is that the world may be full of objects, but what makes human beings distinct is that we are not objects, we are subjects. And what does that mean? It means we have an interior depth, a richness of subjectivity. Now, somebody in our day is very likely to say, oh, such and such isn't real, it's just subjective. That is to say, it's just in your personality. Mm. And so we we often use the language of subjectivity to reduce the value of things people say. In the tradition coming out of German idealism, in the tradition of 20th century phenomenology that John Paul II is working in, the idea of subjectivity is the idea of of interior depth, interior richness and mystery. To be fully subject, to be wholly subjective, means to have a wholeness of being that's denied to things that are merely objective. And so the idea of talking about an alter ego, another I, is to speak of one subjectivity, that is to say, one center of activity, of thought, of feeling, of being, entertaining the possibility that there could be other subjectivities out in the world, other persons. So putting yourself in the perspective of the other person. In the sense of encountering them not as an object, but as a full center of life, of being, and and activity. You mentioned Jean-Paul Sartre. For Sartre, uh, the human person in virtue of subjectivity, in virtue of our consciousness, is entirely isolated. It's cut off from other people. Other people will never, says Sartre, appear to us the way we do to ourselves. John Paul II is more or less rejecting that. He's saying, in effect, to the contrary, the purpose of our lives is to come to participate in the selfhood of others, to meet others, not as objects in the world where only ourselves are subjective and have subjectivity, but where we really recognize the subjectivity, the subjecthood of others. In his philosophy, and I think truth will bear this out, this coming to participate in the subjectivity, the selfhood of another, is something that's only fully possible, or maybe I should say it's most richly possible, specifically in marital love, in the sacrament of matrimony, the sacrament of marriage, oneself genuinely does transcend the walls of the self and enter into a new reality with yet another, with another subjectivity. That's what Andrew's craving. But think about how how long I just went on about this. Uh, this is a play, so it has to be a little bit more efficient and, and a little bit clearer than, than the language of the philosophers. And so what Andrew says when he thinks of Teresa is that he feels pulled towards her not because she's physically beautiful, not because of any one particular thing, but because there's some deep sense when he encounters her that she's the kind of woman 
who could truly become an alter ego, another I that enters into communion with the I-ness, the selfhood, the subjectivity of Andrew. And the language that we end up hearing to explain that is the idea of, he says, of throwing down a bridge. Human beings and their subjectivity might seem like solitary islands, but the kind of love that he feels pulled to have for Teresa is the kind of love where the island of Andrew and the island of Teresa could be joined together by way of a footbridge. A lot of people like myself, I think like the first and third couple because the second couple is just such a mess. But there's a difference between how the first couple, Andrew and Teresa, are portrayed in the text of the play versus the movie. So in the movie, Andrew's like a very good looking, upright, moral guy. You really like him. He's Teresa's biggest fan. She's a pianist. She asks him deep and profound questions. Like you can tell that there's a real relationship. He's always concerned for her when they're in the woods. He goes after her. In fact, it's his concern for that which he loves, including his country, that keeps him interested in what's going on with Hitler in Europe. And I actually love this quote from him in the film once it's clear that he's going to the front lines to defend Poland. He says, if a country is worth living in, it's worth fighting for. And you can tell that there's a fondness of Teresa, even if he's not fully conscious of how much he likes her beyond their friendship. But in the book, because we're hearing his inner dialogue, it's intriguing in its entirety, but we see a very different version of this relationship. And when you're reading it from Andrew's point of view, it seems like he wasn't infatuated with Teresa, which is good. I think we can all recognize that. But are we gathering that he wasn't initially attracted to her? Because he's comparing her to other girls. And obviously we see the stark contrast and difference where he's kind of swept up with the sensation of them and then finds himself, like you said, on solitary islands. And he obviously cannot shake these thoughts of Teresa. You know, he always is persistently returning to her, but it feels like he doesn't want to, that it just feels like he ought to. So to play devil's advocate rereading this, I'm wondering why we find this romantic (laughs) because, you know, there's a part where Teresa's talking about knowing about his interest in other girls, but having this assurance that she was right for him and that they understood each other perfectly. And it seems like she likes him, that she knew he was the one, but she didn't let her feelings get caught up until he pops the question out of nowhere. I don't know. There's like this reluctance to the other almost. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious what you make of this and if Andrew is truly interested in Teresa or if he's just feeling obligated to go after her. We could even read his portion where he talks about how he found his way to Teresa, that it took a while. Like I I love hearing his yeah. heart and his thoughts on this, but there is a, a sense of being tormented. And so I think at first hand, yeah. when you're reading that as a woman, you're thinking about Teresa and you're kind of like, I don't know, like, does this guy really like her or not? That's exactly, I think, what you're supposed to think. Is this romantic? It's not romantic. <laughs> it's, it's, it's deliberately the antithesis of romance. We'll come back to that in act three, but here's what I mean by that. Andrew wants what we think of as romance. He wants love at first sight. He wants to regard love as a passion, as an emotion to surpass all. I believed in the absolute of emotion, he says. He wants to just be overcome by his feelings. The pull he feels towards Teresa is not that ecstatic pull of the feelings. It's a deeper pull. What's being pulled? The interior of his whole self. So he's being drawn not by the eyes, not by the heart, but by the whole of his being towards Teresa. And so it's not that he's willing himself to love her. I once knew somebody who says, who, who said, she said, I don't love this guy, 
but he has asked me to marry him and he's a good guy. And so I'm, I, I'm going to force myself to love him. Because <laughs> it's a choice. It, it's supposed to be, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she, she, it's not. I mean, sorry, it's not supposed to be. Nobody wants love to be a choice. But we tend to think, well, you're just dumb, struck head over heels. You know, the language is always of ecstasy, of being out of control. The word rapture means seize. We want to be seized by love. And the language that we use, the romantic language we use, is always about the feeling. We think that we're just being pulled out of our senses. We enter into what Plato calls a divine madness that pulls us away from our normal sensible self and leads us to do something we otherwise would not do, which is to give ourselves entirely to another. Well, Andrew does not have that. And when we see that he doesn't have these romantic feelings for Teresa, we think there's something defective in the love. It's interesting because in this one part, after he says the idea of throwing a bridge, I let that thought run on and even develop within me. It was not an ascent independent of an act of will, I simply resisted sensation and the appeal of the senses, for I knew that otherwise I would never really leave my ego. So I understand that he's trying to view love correctly in the way that he should, but it, it does almost mm -hmm. sound like an act of the will, like because there's no feelings attached to it. I mean, the, the part that I yeah. like, though, is that he says, I met a few girls who absorbed my imagination and also my thoughts, but at the moments when it seemed to me I was most concerned with them, I suddenly realized that Teresa was still there in my consciousness and memory, mm -hmm. and I instinctively mm -hmm. compared each of them with her and even wished them to push her from my consciousness in a way I counted on it. I was ready to follow it. This is what's sad. It's like on one hand, he's wanting to have them push her out, but that the, the fact that she's so persistently there and it's such a stark difference between her versus everyone else. On one hand, you're like, okay, it is love because there's a difference between her and every other girl. However, hearing his thought process, you're kind of like, I'm hoping that there's a little bit of feeling. I mean, like, that's what's weird. In the movie, you can tell he likes her. So I guess I'm trying to understand what the text is trying to communicate. Yes. Yes. So it, the play is teaching Andrew and Teresa what really are the more superficial features of love that are appealing to us. And we think of them as romantic are nonetheless going to be denied to them because they have overvalued them and they have taken what should just be signs of deep love for one another mm. as the love itself. Interesting. So they get denied to those superficial signs and what they get is a genuine interior communion. You gave that wonderful example a second ago. Here's another example. As they're standing looking in a shop, Teresa is looking at a pair of high-heeled shoes and she's thinking about the shoes. But in retrospect, she realizes what she's actually thinking is, are these the right height so that when I am standing next to Andrew at our wedding, that I'll be the right height for him? So <laughs> she's realizing that what's on the surface appropriately, a superficial thought. Well, these shoes look nice. That interior to that thought is Andrew. And so it's that idea of Teresa occupying or assuming an interior place in Andrew's life mm. and vice versa that matters most. So we get this wonderful passage where Andrew says, or love can be a collision in which two selves realize profoundly they ought to belong to each other even though they have no convenient moods or sensations. And it's not that those things are bad, they're not being condemned, but they're not enough. If they're to be the real thing, they need to be signs of a deeper interior connection. And what Andrew discovers in Teresa is that even without those signs, which he has chased so futilely in the past, it's possible for him to have that deep interior interweaving of a being and being, of self and self 
with Teresa, not in the normal kind of superficial way where he just looks at her and sees beauty of her appearance and is drawn to that. It's rather he's drawn to the beauty of the beauty of truth, the truth of her being, mm. the innermost nature of her being. And that's what pulls them together. Their love is not perfect though. And that's actually why the two central events of act one have to occur. The first is when they recall a hiking trip, which is just so perfect because uh, as you may know, John Paul II in his duties as a priest would develop different kinds of what we would now call pre-cana programs. And he would take young couples on hikes in the mountains. So they're out on a hiking trip and the world seems beautiful. Everything seems so brilliantly ordered to Teresa, except for one thing, mankind. Only mankind <laughs> seems out of order. <laughs> And then they hear a call. Suddenly, as we were standing and watching, somewhere above our heads, we clearly heard a call. It was rather like wailing or like a groan or even a whine, maybe. And then it was not clear whether it was a man calling or a late bird wailing. And in, in fact, even late in the act, they're still saying, what was that call? The title of act one is signals. Here's the signal. Here's the sound that goes out in the wilderness. It's literally a cry going out in the wilderness, okay? Now that's an important phrase out of scripture and nobody interprets it properly. So what is the symbol of the call? The children of the first two couples become engaged and marry in the third act. So there's a certain amount of unity, but there's one other kind of unity that is not as obvious. And that's this. In act two and act three, we have the character Adam who appears. He speaks to Anna in act two and in act three, he's present at the wedding of Christopher and Monica. And he clearly has come to play a role in Christopher's life. What this signal is, this voice crying out in the wilderness, is meant to be a symbolic representation of the great cry of joy that Adam gives out in the book of Genesis when he first sees Eve. At last, he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That is to say, at last, an alter ego, another I, in whose life I can participate. It's the great cry of marriage. And when that cry goes out, Andrew and Teresa, drawn to one another as they are, are not yet able to hear it properly, which is a sign that they are still resisting the call to participate in one another's lives and to participate in one another's selves or existences. And so what happens? They go, they do decide that despite their own resistance to one another, that they are destined to be married. They can't resist. It's not because they're choosing to love one another. It's because they can't resist it any longer. They feel so pulled together. So in a way, you know, you know it's funny. There's, there's constantly a debate in Catholic circles about whether you have a soulmate. <laughs> to me, this sounds like a soulmate. It is the, the choice that maybe you wouldn't have made, but you feel compelled to choose. That's, that's exactly right. And so, you know, the language of soulmate, it's usually described in the language of Plato's symposium. Yeah. And I symposium. think, I think that's why Catholics yeah. disregard it. But I think if you look at yeah. in the book of Tobit, there is a mm -hmm. sense of God divinely orchestrating people to be together. There's a fate element to this that they're meant to be, that if it would have been right with those other girls, it would have worked. You know what I mean? That's, ex that's exactly right. They are gradually coming to understand that because they're interior selves, their souls, their subjectivities are called to one another. Rather than resisting it, 
they need to allow that faded drawing together to proceed. And so they do. But as we see in the signal scene, they're not there at first. It takes them a while. The moment in act one that brings them into communion or to come to participate in one another's lives as and, and selves, as John Paul II would put it in his philosophy, is their encounter with the jeweler. They go into the jewelry store to buy their wedding rings. And the jeweler launches onto very impromptu and strange meditation on the weights of these gold rings. It says they have the proper weight of man. And then he gives a long, in some ways, you know, incongruous and odd soliloquy to the rings. What he's trying to get at, just like in C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, things are bigger on the inside than they are on the outside. You go into the hut in The Last Battle and you discover a whole nother Narnia within the hut. Well, so also when we go into the self, we discover that we have depths, we have profundities, we have abysses in ourselves that are greater than any to be found in the exterior world. And in revealing the interior depths of what it means to be human to Andrew and Teresa, Andrew and Teresa are at long last able to realize, oh, this is why we're called to one another. It's precisely because there's so much more to us than our feelings, so much more to us than our appearance, that there's this great world of subjectivity in which we can come to participate in each other's lives. And so when they fully grasp, as it were, the interior weight of one another, at that moment, then they're able to see clearly a vision of their union. Can you explain yeah. the part where he says, how close she passed by me then? And I think this is in reference to the hike. She almost hemmed me in with her imagination and the discreet suffering, which at the time I did not want to know. And today I'm willing to regard as our common good. Andrew's difficulty that has to be overcome if he's going to marry Teresa is in a certain sense, easier to explain. For Andrew, his first inclination in life has been to just pursue romantic feelings, mm -hmm. love at first sight and so on and so forth. And so he has to learn that in fact, love is more deeply inset at the core of the human person, in the soul, in the heart of our being, than romantic lore and conventions might otherwise lead us to believe. For Teresa, her challenge is different than that. It's not that she mistakes passion for love, feeling for love. It's rather that she is afraid of the risk of love. She's afraid of going out of herself. So Andrew, from the beginning, wants to go out of himself. He wants ecstasy, but he looks for ecstasy in the wrong place. And then through Teresa, he discovers the true ecstasy, that is to say the true going out of the self into the life of another. In Teresa's case, she's actually afraid of going out of herself. She's afraid of surrendering herself to another because of the risk. Here's a difference with the movie. She actually mm -hmm. asks him a series of questions. She says, you don't trust, do you? What exactly? Life? your own fate, people, God, which has disappointed you. I mean, in the play that happens too. But the difference, I think, is that his lack of trust had led him initially, you might say, to pursue a more superficial mode of love where the feeling itself would be the only evidence mm. where she's actually afraid of being overwhelmed by feelings. And so both of them actually have to be taught something. They both have to learn how to love one another properly. They come to a proper understanding of love through first their experience of coming to love one another in a person that they didn't expect to love. But then the jeweler is able to explain to them what it is that they're experiencing. I was going to say, mm -hmm. it's an interesting proposal. 
And I wanted to get a little bit into that and what it maybe symbolizes mm-hmm. in their love story mm-hmm. because Andrew is walking ahead of her and asked Teresa to be his life's companion, looking forward as if he's looking at the road that stretched out before them. She then runs to get white heels to make herself taller for him. I wanted to talk a little bit about that idea of looking outward and maybe towards God versus either inward or strictly at the other. And so I was wondering if their proposal was kind of maybe like imagery to maybe that reality. It's a great question. The place to start is usually at the beginning. And from the beginning, we know that something is a little bit unusual about the relationship of Teresa and Andrew. And it's expressed as soon as he turns around in the square and asks her, not, will you marry me? But do you want to be my life's companion? (laughs) And this sounds awkward. You know, I can imagine probably making this kind of awkward proposal, uh, but but uh, but most of us wouldn't want to make this kind of proposal. We would want to say just the right thing. But the reason that Andrew says it and says it this way is because by the time he comes to propose to Teresa, he's discovered that his love for her is not conventionally romantic. In that moment, that scene with the misunderstood signals, what they most want is to be understood, self understood by another self. Where do we get this from Teresa in the text that she is, I guess, afraid of love? Teresa says, I was always as hard as a tree that would rather rot than topple. If I cried for myself, it was not from disappointed love, and yet it was difficult. She is, you might say, the kind of classic stoic personality who hardens herself against emotion precisely because she's afraid that she'll be wounded irreparably by the experience of emotion. But she too learns that the only kind of love is a genuine opening of the self to self. In the case of the jeweler for Andrew and Teresa, ominously, they can only see as far as their wedding. When they see their wedding, they see a great chorus of all the guests raising glasses and singing to Teresa and Andrew. And each of the the parts of the chorus are significant, but the third chorus says this, new people, Teresa and Andrew, two until now, but still not one, one from now on, though still two. And this sums up the beauty of the sacrament of marriage. It can't be a marriage if there's only one. It has to be two, but they're two becoming one flesh. And yet they must remain two or it wouldn't be a marriage. It would just be one self absorbing another in a sort of weird monistic ritual. Marriage is a participation in another eye, but not the reduction of one eye to the other. It's not a kind of, you know, solipsistic, absorption of the other. It's rather coming to participate in that other's subjectivity as a freestanding subjectivity that is not you. One eye face-to-face with another eye. One subject face-to-face with another subject, no longer just subject and object. But love passes through the body and transcends it. To have a child is to bring a new existence, the existence of the marriage into being. Mm. And it's not just a spiritual union. It's a fully incarnate union. It's the child. Okay. So, so their marriage will be harbored in the body of their child, meaning that the marital love they have for one another becomes visible and incarnate in this new existence that will be their son, Christopher. That's the beauty and the glory of their marriage, but also they can't see beyond their wedding. And for the reason that you suggested earlier, because Andrew's gonna go off to fight in the war and he's going to be killed in the war. And so their marriage will endure, 
their love will endure. It will persist just as Christopher, the son, persists in the world. Interesting way of looking at that. Andrew himself will be gone. It endures. That's both the blessing and the curse, as we learn in Act 3, that Andrew is somehow still present, but he's also not present. That's the grief that Teresa was afraid of from the beginning, and she gets it. She gets the grief. That's so sad. Well, (laughs) okay, well. Yes, it is. Stay tuned. I'll be back to discuss Act 2 with Professor Wilson when we come back. Welcome back to The Base Catholic. I'm your host, Jessica Kramer. We are back with Professor Wilson to discuss one of my favorite plays, St. Pope John Paul II's The Jeweler Shop. Here is our debrief on Act 2. Set the stage for Stefan and Anna. In the movie, they are a mess. You don't even think Mm -hmm. Anna respects Stefan, even when they're dating before they're married. And then he's just honestly a terrible character. He's such an opportunist. And then it feels like she's the one pushing marriage. In Act 2, we have a couple, Anna and Stefan, but Anna is the only one who's on stage. Stefan never appears. So we only hear of Stefan. From Anna's language, we sense immediately just what the movie would show or what the movie shows. And that's Stefan's a a dodgy character. He may be unfaithful. He's certainly emotionally isolated from her. And a rift opens between them, as she puts it. She even says, he does not love me anymore since he does not react to my grief. It's important to recognize this is her experience of Stefan. It's not uh, necessarily the Mm. whole story of their marriage. Because it is coming from her. There's Mm -hmm. something that she expresses that I think is relatable to people. She says, it is too terrible a thing to have committed the walls of my interior to a single inhabitant who could disinherit myself and somehow deprive me of my place in it. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, is this relationship meant to show the danger of a faulty foundation or the danger of infatuation? Is this like maybe the opposite of what... Teresa and Andrew had. That's the crucial passage for the whole act. It was as if Stefan had ceased to be in me. Did I cease to be in him too? Or was it simply that I felt I now existed only in myself? At first, I felt such a stranger to myself. It was as if I had become unaccustomed to the walls of my interior, so full had they been of Stefan, that without him, they seemed empty. Now let's think about what the problem she's describing there. In act one for Andrew, he wanted to admit, as it were, another person into his selfhood. The question for him was, how do you do that? But Anna has done it. And now when she feels as if Stefan has ripped himself away from her, ripped himself out of her, that she no longer recognizes herself. She's become a mystery to herself again. She doesn't know who she is. What we hear here is Anna actually meditating on one of the possible implications of one of John Paul II's greatest teachings from his pontificate. And that is uh, in his first encyclical letter, Redemptor Hermenus, he writes, man cannot live without love. He remains a being Mm. that is incomprehensible for himself. His life is senseless if love is not revealed to him. If he does not encounter love, if he does not experience it and make it its own, if he does not participate intimately in it. This, as has already been said, is why Christ the Redeemer fully reveals man to himself. That's quoting the Second Vatican Council. So think about what that claim is. That is such a 
profound claim. We are inclined to think, as Teresa is in Act 1, that we know ourselves and can come to know ourselves and we can even be ourselves. And then love is something super added. Mm. No, the church teaches us, and John Paul II in particular teaches us. To the contrary, it is through entering into the relationship of love that our isolated ego, our selfhood, is revealed to us in its significance. And this happens most obviously in Christ's loving sacrifice on the cross, that by Christ revealing his love for us through his death, he teaches us our worth in a way we could otherwise never have known. That's the archetypal expression of love, but it's not the only one. Every relationship of love is a means of becoming or discovering the self that we are, that we're called to be. And so Anna, far from having known herself before she married Stefan, came to properly understand herself and who she was only through Stefan. Mm. And so then when he seems to withdraw his love for her, she feels as if she's an enigma to herself once again. It seems to me that they're both, so Teresa and Anna are kind of the extremes. Teresa being the stoic thinks, Mm -hmm. well, because I don't want maybe to experience what Anna experienced, and be destroyed by love, I'll keep myself away from it. But then Anna seems to put her identity in that human relationship. So when that crumbles, now she has no identity anymore. I love how this place so nicely puzzled together because Anna has some of Teresa's characteristics and she also has some of Andrew's characteristic. Like Andrew, she wants love to be Every, everything, yeah. Yeah, she, she wants it to be a, an overwhelming passion. And what she really wants from Stefan, to win his rights to her continuously. Yeah. I didn't want to feel like an object that cannot be lost once it was acquired. We don't really know how withdrawn Stefan is from her. It could be in principle that he's just confident in their marriage and so takes it for granted or takes it as an assured thing in a way we don't actually ever learn for sure what the real faults of the marriage are. We just know that he's not providing her the kind of emotional signs and consolations that she desires and that will assure her that she's as present in his interior as he is in hers. Quite possible that she's putting too much weight, you might say, on just the feeling, the romantic feeling, the dramatic feeling of Stefan's love for her and is overlooking that their existences are already and permanently united at a more profound level. And in fact, that's the challenge of Act 2 and why this character of Adam has to appear. What Adam does is he forces her to think about the nature of the marriage and what marriage really is. Is marriage just a convenience of feelings, that is to say two feelings coming together, or is it a more profound union of existence itself, of, of body and soul? She basically says that she is longing for someone perfect, for a man firm and good. She's looking for it in other men. So Anna, like Andrew early on in Act One, she'll say to Adam, isn't what one feels most strongly the truth? That is to say, she wants love to be a saturation of feeling. And Adam dissents. He says, that's not what love is. Sure, love involves feelings, but there's much more to it. He says, love is a synthesis of two people's existence, which converges, as it were, to a certain point and makes them one. And the language of the bridegroom awakens in Anna a desire for just this, this union, not just of feeling with feeling, but of self with self. And Adam will go on to say, the feelings of love are so overwhelming. The surface of human love is so great 
that we might be tempted to think that there's nothing more to it. But he insists that there is. The surface of love has its current, and we get carried away by it. But it's not the whole thing. Man is a continuum, a totality and a continuity. So it cannot be that nothing remains. And here's Here's the, the pith of the argument. If self really enters into the life of another self, as Anna says at the beginning, that the walls of her interior were once occupied by Stefan and vice versa, that's more than just feelings entering into you. It's the whole being. The whole of Stefan's existence has to be present there. And what Adam is there to do is to remind Anna, or rather to teach Anna, that it's the fullness of their existence that has been united in marriage, not just their feelings. And what that means is that even if those feelings withdraw, even if those feelings fail, they're still married. In fact, this is why Act 2 is, makes very painful reading and also is, the, is like a gauntlet thrown down by John Paul II and indeed by the whole church to every man and wife, to every marriage. What Anna discovers is that she wants to unite her existence with another, and so she goes and and makes eyes at other men in the streets yeah. of Poland. You know? I thought one and, interesting part was yeah. when she talks about learning what a casual woman might mean. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, she, she's, she just, she wants something that will make her feel fulfilled. And alive. That will make her yeah. feel alive and occupied. And <laughs> Occupied as in filled up by another, the way that Stefan once filled her. And so she thinks she can do it just by engaging in brief, superficial encounters, which she doesn't indulge in, but she contemplates it. She seeks it. Anna says that she saw Stefan's face in a man. She hates his face. And I had Jason Mm -hmm. Everett on my show. And when we were talking, he mentioned how when love is viewed wrong, when that infatuation almost turns on you and it disappears, you experience hatred of the other because you've lost the feeling that they once gave you. Do you think that that's what's being communicated here? The theologian Brad Petra has written a book called Christ the Bridegroom. It's a marvelous book precisely because it brings out how rich, in fact, how ubiquitous is the theology of the bridegroom in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. That Christ, the Messiah, is from prophecy on consistently represented as the bridegroom who will come to save his bride. And so when Adam begins to speak of the bridegroom coming, That's like the Old Covenant, Adam from the book of Genesis, prophesying the coming of the New Testament, of the New Covenant, of of Christ himself. And so then when the bridegroom does finally come, and Anna's so excited because here is love at last. Here love, true love at last will be revealed to me. She's so excited. And then she looks, and on the bridegroom who is Christ, she sees not the face of Jesus, not the face of some other man. She sees Stefan's face and she's just in dismay. Why? Why must he have Stefan's face? That is to say, why must the figure of love itself, God is love itself, Christ the bridegroom is love itself. Why must the figure of love itself have Stefan's face? And here is, as I said, the great challenge, the gauntlet thrown down by act two. Here are the words of Christ himself, of love itself, beloved, You do not know how deeply you are mine, how much you belong to my love and my suffering, because to love means to give life through death. To love means to let gush a spring of the water of life into the depths of the soul. You don't feel the spring, but are consumed by the flame. Now, what is the bridegroom saying? 
He's saying, first of all, love gives life through death. Christ died on the cross. His absolute surrender in love for us is a revelation to us of who we are. Christ as love itself, love with a capital L. That love reveals to Anna the nature of her sacramental marital love for Stephen and Stephen's for her. If Christ is the bridegroom, Christ also carried the cross and died on the cross. If Stephen has the face of the bridegroom for Anna, and he does, that means that this man to whom she is married may also be, however painful it is to even entertain the possibility, he may also be the cross she has to bear. And it's through the bearing of the cross of her union, her marriage to Stefan, that she will discover, however painfully, the nature and the depths of love. Here is the quintessence of the Catholic Church's teaching on marriage as countercultural. In our day, if someone had the complaints that Anna has about Stefan, the instant, <laughs> the almost instant <laughs> counsel of everybody would be, well, just divorce him. Yeah. Go find somebody you really love. We didn't bring up the jeweler yet, but what happens in this, mm. this act? She goes into the jeweler shop to sell back her wedding ring. That would be a divorce, yeah. right? Um, and the jeweler won't take it. He says this, this ring weighs nothing. Why does it weigh nothing? Shouldn't it just weigh, you know, an ounce of gold or whatever? No, it weighs nothing because it's not with the other ring. She can no sooner give that weight away by just selling her wedding ring back then she can somehow negate the marriage by, in G.K. Chesterton's language, engaging in this superstition of divorce. You might say, but isn't this too much of a load to bear? And it is too much. And that's why Adam says to her, love, again with a capital L, is not an adventure. It cannot be a single moment, a moment of passion or happiness. That is why it is to be found in the dimensions of God, because only he is eternity. It would be too much for Anna. It would be too much for Stefan. It would be too much for any of us to bear the full existential weight of marriage by ourselves. But we don't bear it by ourselves. There is a third participant in every marriage, and that's God. It's God who bears the weight. And so Anna does not have to rely purely on herself. She has to rely on God who's actually holding her union with Stefan together. The way I see Act 2 as unfolding is that in Act 1, we learn that the nature of marriage is to come to participate in the self of another so that you're simultaneously one, but also still two. What act two is revealing to us is really twofold. First, that we need love and what it reveals even to know our own self. So you could almost go so far as to say that there's no such thing as the solitary ego that Andrew talks about in act one. You don't know yourself until you love and have been loved by another. Love reveals our, the self to us. So the self never fully exists alone. It never knows itself fully alone. That's how dependent we are upon the relationship that love makes possible. It's not just a choice to go out of ourselves, to come to know another and to love another. Even to know and to love ourself, we have to engage in the relationship of love that goes beyond us. But the other part is this, that marital love really is not just metaphorically or figuratively speaking, a synthesis of two existences. It's not only metaphorically a union of two into one flesh. Sacramentally, that's the actual reality. And because we don't perform the sacrament, the sacrament is performed by God. That union is not up to or at the discretion of the valences of our will on this day or the other. 
Okay, so we're going to be finishing our discussion on the jeweler shop next week with Act 3. Make sure to listen for that conclusion. I want to thank my guest, Father Kevin Estabrook of Cleveland, for being my show's chaplain, Mark Cummings for helping me with this week's show, and you for listening. Please share this episode on Apple or Spotify with anyone who you think might enjoy it, specifically anyone based. Animal based! If you're like Aria and need more based, make sure you never miss an episode of The Based Catholic, Saturdays at 5 p.m. on AM 1420. The answer, as well as on all podcasting platforms and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Jessica Kramer helps you be Catholic and be based. There's a show. That's a show.